save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, I'm Ellie Weiss, and you're listening to Our Wild World. We've been discussing the various human-wildlife conflict and management strategies over the course of several episodes. It was with the focus on cougars and how they, and wildlife in general, see our landscape. Today, with my guest Sharon Baruch Mordo, we're going to look at the human dimensions of behavior modification to address these conflicts, and we're going to focus on black bears. There is a growing recognition among wildlife managers that focusing management on wildlife often provides a temporary fix to human-wildlife conflicts, whereas changing human behavior can provide a long-term solution. Human Dimensions research of wildlife conflicts frequently focuses on stakeholders' characteristics, problem identification, and acceptability of management, and less frequently on human behavior and evaluation of management actions to change that behavior. Consequently, little information is available on these relationships between the educational aspects of human behavior changes and these studies incorporated into management policies. Currently, my guest Sharon is a spatial scientist with the Nature Conservancy's Global Land Science Team. Previously, she worked on a wide range of uh, research topics relating to conservation and human-dominated landscapes. Before joining TNC, her research focused on urban blackberry ecology and human-bear interactions and conflicts and was part of a multi-year bear study in the mid-2000s addressing just these issues and challenges right here in my home turf of Aspen, Colorado and the Upper Roaring Fork Valley. So it's such a pleasure to have Sharon in here because this brings it down to reality and what happens right in my backyard and with a lot of my listeners backyard so welcome Sharon Thank you, Ellie, and it's great to be here and great talking to you today. I'm so looking forward to this. We've been planning on this conversation for quite some time, so we finally get to uh, do this. So why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be involved in this study. Why you? Great question. Um, um, Probably a combination of a lot of persistence and a lot of luck. Um, I am originally from Israel and always loved wildlife. Never knew growing up that I could actually do something like wildlife management or wildlife ecology as a profession. I loved watching BBC and the like. Um, And then um, my late husband and I had an opportunity to come to the U.S. We toured and we fell in love with the Western U.S. um, And I immediately fell in love with bears. I thought they were the greatest animals alive. Um, The physiology with hibernation, their capabilities, and they're just darn cute. And so um, we decided to go back and study as international students in the U.S. And um, we just kind of, like I said, persisted. And I had um, a lot of luck getting opportunities to first study um, human-wildlife conflicts and their patterns in Colorado, which had nothing to do with a field study. 
and that was with collaborators at the National Wildlife Research Center. Um, and I should say that was part of me being at Colorado State University in the Department of Fish, Wildlife, Conservation, Biology, and the Graduate Degree Program in Ecology. And then um, that evolved into the field study that became the Urban Black Bear um, study in Aspen, Colorado. So, yeah, a lot of persistence and a lot of luck. Well, this is fascinating. So, it, it, I have to ask, when and where did you see your first black bear? Ooh, that's a great question. I would think it was Yellowstone. Uh, we started in Oklahoma at the time, and then we made our way up through Colorado um, to Yellowstone. And I, I also fell in love with Yellowstone. I love that um, ecosystem. Um, and yeah, so I think that was there. I remember I barely could handle conversation English like I am now. And we would go to every campfire talk by the rangers. And one time we went to um, a student talk in one campground um, in Wyoming actually by one of the I think it's Steve Harlow um, or some like that students out of Wyoming and he talked about hibernation studies and showed us photos and I just my jaw just dropped and I'm like I gotta do this and <laughs> so, how, how long did it take you to get from you know your first visit and your first bear to actually getting into with your, this persistence you talked about to doing it did it take years did it I mean it's, it's a tough field to get into when you come in it sideways sort of yeah. Um, and being a woman. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, so it took about, um, well, not about, it took 10 years. So we did our tour in 1995 and I started my master's in 2004 and then the field project um, shortly after 2005. Um, I, you know, I had my trials and tribulations and I thought that I would never secure a field study. It was also carnivores in general. My actually first field experience studying carnivores was studying wolves outside of Yellowstone, tracking them as part of Northwest College in Powell, Wyoming. I was a student there. And then uh, later on, on David Meech's project in Minnesota. So it, it took a while. There's a lot of rejections, but being a scientist and a researcher, rejection is part of your life. And um, you just have to persist and follow your heart and follow your love. And then you do, you know, we do it for the love of what we're doing. Um, and we want to do it to, to better the world for wildlife and conservation. So. That is such a great answer because that's how we hope to enlighten and engage folks through this program to get involved. You just have to start and do the work and persist. So um, my next question would be, um, so in I think the study in Aspen uh, started in 2007? 2005, we started to field work. Okay, so what were the key factors that you were looking at that lead to human bear conflicts? Yeah, so at the beginning, we were just trying to understand what's an urban bear. Um, my um, former colleagues or advisors at CSU and National Wildlife Research Center um, were, were studying those issues for a while. Like I said, in, in our for my master's, I studied the patterns in Colorado, and there were certain hotspots and certain hotspots that relate to either livestock conflicts or is it more residential, the way we categorize them, conflicts. And I wanted to understand what is about it. I mean, there have been a lot of studies to, by, you know, back then to date that have identified conflict hotspots, but um, we really wanted to understand what's an urban bear and, and understand, you know, really put a GPS collar on them, get the really detailed, refined information and start to understand why does a bear go into the, the urban environment? What are they after? And then also, of course, ask what are some management um, activities that we can apply to actually management actions to prevent human um, 
bear conflict. So, you know, we had our pre-notions of what's an urban bear, um, which I think are very, even up to today, are can be pretty prevalent in the management world. And we just wanted to say, is that true? And I can and I can specify more if you'd like. Uh, yeah, let's let's define an urban bear. You know, in in like a sentence or two, compared to okay, let's say where I live, it's a crossover, and as population has expanded in this valley, we move more and more into wild places and spaces, blurring those lines. So we're going to talk about it a little later. I have bears in my yard, but I'm not. I'm in more of a suburban or sub-rural area, but it is definitely a human-dominated landscape. Versus Aspen, which is 16 square blocks of uh, high-intensity population, smack dab in the middle of a wilderness area, BLM land, and national forest. So those lines are very blurred, and Aspen definitely has a bear problem which I prefer to call a people problem. And I think that's what we're talking about today. Yeah, so you, you brought up something. That, that was a very good description. And um, you bring a, a really good point. What, what we consider urban is oftentimes human boundaries. And, and you know, the, the town limit is not necessarily the end of town um, resources for a bear. So it could be more rural. It could be garbage cans along the Roaring Fork River. It could be smack down in the middle of downtown Aspen that we have um, garbage containers. And I'm mentioning garbage because when we um, studied bears in Aspen, that was the number one anthropogenic or human-related attractant. Um, But also in terms of the managers, you know, when we think about urban bears, we thought about, um, you know, they thought, and actually I have quotes here from from a, a manager conference that I attended. Bears are like drug addicts. You know, once they get hooked on sunflower seeds or other attractants, they don't reverse the behavior. Or once they become habituated, then, you know, they become those bad bears. Or once a garbage bear, always a garbage bear. So that was kind of like the notion of what's an urban bear in terms of the management world. And that implies that bears rely on human resources and that that behavior behavior is irreversible. And those were the key two things that we wanted to really quantify and understand when we studied bears in Aspen. So to do this on the flip side, what you were looking at is what attracts the bear to be become an urban bear. And I'll, I'll say now that the results of your study ended up in implementing bear proof locking containers throughout the town and throughout Peyton County, unincorporated, unincorporated Peyton County, we all have to have bear-proof locking containers. And, you know, if we have time, we can get into the variety of those. Some work, some don't. So right. um, let's go back with, um, you know, when you started addressing what managers looked at as a, a bear problem and the things they were attracted to. Let's look at the flip side of what you were looking at, that... Um, led you to want to look specifically at changing human behaviors? Sure. So very quickly we found, um, so we put, I should say, we put GPS collars on bears that collected information or a fix, a locational fix using satellites every 15 in the beginning and later 30 minutes. So we knew every 30 minutes where the bear were. 
Moreover, those callers allowed us to communicate with them in the field. So we, we, we did what we call a backtracking study where we would download in the field the last 24 hours of the bear's activity. And then we could go and start backtracking without going to the most recent points because obviously we don't want to disturb the bears um, and start backtracking to look and see where did they visit a town? What were their attractants? So very quickly, um, it was clear that garbage um, was the number one attractant as, as I um, um, mentioned, but also when we looked at it over the years, so we did it from 2005 until 2010, we started looking at patterns of use of town. And I should say that in Colorado, bears rely very heavily on mast production. By mast, we mean um, plants that produce fruit in, in mast, if you will. And so okay. they could be berries or gamble oak, or choke cherry berries, service bears, gamble oak. And so in 2005 and 2008 and 2010, we had a very good mass production year. And so there were plenty of berries. The bears had plenty of natural food. In 2007 and 2009, there were very bad mass food production year. And those can fail due to drought, due to late freeze in spring that kills the fruit, the flowers, and then we don't have fruit. And so we had those dynamics. And what we saw that kind of relates back to that definition of irreversible behavior is that in good food years, the bear might use town, but they forage naturally, but they mostly stayed out of town. And in poor natural years, it was completely reversed. They were in town and they would forage on garbage and they, they would also forage on natural foods if they could find them. But but for uh, garbage, and I should also mention um, um, apple, crab apple trees. That was right. another major attractant. But what was interesting is once we started looking at the same individuals, so back to the irreversible behavior, those individuals went into town and out of town and into town and out of town. And so that behavior was completely reversible and appeared to be completely cued by what the natural food production is doing. Now, we're assuming that the availability of human human resources, right, human foods are always there because we always have crab apple trees, we all, always have garbage. So now the only thing that changes is the fluctuation of the natural food production. Moreover, we found that when bears use town, they adjusted their behavior. So usually bears are crepuscular animals, which means they are active um, early in the morning and late in the evening, unless they go into the phase of hyperphagia, which means um, eating a lot or, you know, uh, feeding almost all the time before hibernation. And what we found is during prehyperphagia or hyperphagia, they became nocturnal. So they were using town, but behaviorally, they're adapting to try and avoid humans and human activity. And so they would forage at night, and during the day, they would come to the outskirts or they would find a big tree and just lay and, and, and relax. And then once night came, they would forage again. And again, even that behavior was reversible. So once the next year, they were back in the quote unquote, wildlands, they became crepuscular in their activity again. So that told us that bears are very resourceful. They would use human food sources as whenever they are stressed because their natural food production fails, but they also will reverse that behavior. So it doesn't mean necessarily, and there are a few bears that probably would, but it doesn't mean necessarily that once a bear feeds on human resources and is in town um, that that behavior that they're they're deemed bad bear and they will never reverse their behavior they're habituated they're bad and so that was very key in terms of our finding and I should say that that's those findings were corroborated in another um, Colorado Parks of Wildlife study in 
Durango, where they found very similar results. However, we have a paper also comparing this to um, conflicts and bear behavior in Lake Tahoe, Nevada. And um, that was a little bit different. And there, um, it seems like the bears were in town and, and kind of relied on town resources. And we can talk a little bit more about that. I believe it's the matrix, the habitat is a little bit poorer compared to Aspen in their resources. So they might rely on human resources more. Okay, so, so you, you yeah. said an important word there, a couple of them. You know, a bear habituated to continuously depend, and the operative word was rely on uh, human food sources, and then the other where they use them as needed, but it was reversible. So um, this brings me to a point of that little crux of point in time when a bear is an urban bear and is a good bear you know it leaves town to when it becomes the bad bear and begins to rely on town rather than natural food what is the thing that changed that bear um, that's a great question, and I'm not sure that we have the data to answer it. Um, it I'm assuming that you're asking um, to the point that they don't live in subsequent natural right. good food production year. And right. we don't necessarily have that answer. We don't necessarily, um, you know, we, we didn't do a truly behavioral study in that we're actually observing the bear. And um, we, we did, you know, we did the backtracking. So it's a hard question. Um, I think... Part of it is a judgment call. I mean, there's obviously, and, and it's a judgment call by the management agencies, right? By the Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Um, and that usually and, ends up being a judgment call that's based on human health and safety. Um, correct. And there's different um, characteristics or categories of that and um, different tolerance. So one of the things that really came up, at least for me, and I can speak for myself um, out of the study is what I call the the human the the wildlife manager factor. So when we start we study um, the human bear conflicts, how a wildlife manager in the field reacts to the situation and whether they decide to trap the bear, to translocate, to just ex- provide education, to be more uh, on the tolerant side or less tolerant side um, matters a lot in terms of, I think, I mean, it basically in the response to the conflict. And so I've seen bear managers who are um, all about educating the people and tell them, you know, until you control their tractant, I cannot remove the bear. On the other hand, they're also bound by the law and what's required in Colorado and what's the practice. And so at some point, they do have to set up a trap and trap the bear. What was interesting, and, and in Colorado, we have a two-strike-out rule, whereas if the bear is trapped the first time, it is tagged and relocated, and then upon the second capture, um, it is um, being put down. Now, there's obviously certain behaviors that are very clear. Um, recently, there's been an attack on a, on a hiker in Hunter Creek, um, and that's something that we do not want to tolerate. Even if the bear was just scared and just ran up a tree, it's something that it's unfortunate, and, and it's pretty much something that we have to act on. But there's a lot of a gray area and there's a lot of area to um, apply, I think, um, preventative measures and educate um, landowners on how to better control attractants um, and also do enforcement. And we can talk a little bit about the study that we, we looked at education and enforcement um, before we actually trap and relocate the bear. One last thing I want to mention about that it's very small sample sizes, very anecdotal. We never set up to study this. 
But some of our research bears were caught into traps and, and that were set for conflict. And so a landowner would say, you know, oh my gosh, this bear has been coming, you know, night after night and they broke into the house and the wildlife manager will have to put in a trap and trap the bear. And the next day we have a bear that's a research bear. So I am able to download the data, the GPS data, and I'm able to see back all days, you know, since we deployed the collar, every 30 minutes where the bear was. And the bear was never there the last three days. And so bears move a lot. They don't, unless they're in hyperphagia and a really great berry patch that they may be more, or, or gamble oak patch, they might be more um, stationary. And oftentimes we catch a non-target bear in those traps. And it's hard to sometimes tell whether what we whether we're managing the right bear. And so that's another component. And I know they're, they're doing certain things like DNA testing like they did in the Hunter Creek incident, which is great that we can actually identify the right bear. But a lot of times, especially when we live in great habitat quality bear country, we don't necessarily know whether we're capturing the right bear. And so I think the better focus is how can we reduce attractants and change human behavior, which is something that we potentially have more to control than right. uh, our control of the bear behavior. Well, let's get into that because I also wrote an op-ed piece about that um, bear incident that you just mentioned where that it bit um, a hiker. And there's a lot of... Um, sensationalism sensationalism that goes along with the reporting of these incidents bear attack you know i consider a bear attack you know uh a a mom with uh, a sow with cubs and you're in her way this particular hiker in my opinion didn't quite do enough to remove themselves from the bear they saw it coming they just stepped aside um I don't feel they kept their eye on the bear, that the bear could move very quickly and cover ground, turned and snapped. But it also found upon autopsy of that bear that its stomach contents were full of birdseed. So um, there was very little natural forage going on in that bear. And right now up here, we don't have a lot of natural food sources in bloom or fruiting. Um, So it kind of leads me to... a, a. something that's going on in my yard right now. Um, I inadvertently last year created a food success story for bears. I had a Chewy.com order that got left outside. A mom and three cubs came and destroyed it. I found it the next morning. So my bad. I totally accept it. So at that point, I did everything I could to uh, remove the attractants, bleach around the doors, bleach on the garbage, bleach in the uh, and ammonia in the dumpster, and you know secured my perimeter. They still came back for three nights. Um, on the first night, they did open my door and get into my garage. Fortunately, they were polite and didn't do major destruction. Um, anywhere but they came back for three nights didn't find any more food but then they started using my crab apple trees so at what point can we start hazing and defined hazing and where I was getting to is now this year I think one of those cubs is coming back it's now been spotted three times in my yard and last night it was for the first time clanging on my dumpster. It was all over my locking bear-proof dumpster that has nothing in it at this point. So I know I have to remove the smell of food from that. But it didn't respond 
to my 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 yelling. I didn't have pots and pans. I didn't have my air horn with me, but it was not affected by my voice. It was. It did run when somebody tried to look at it. It didn't want to make eye contact as it ran through my yard yesterday morning, but last night it came back and was all over the dumpster. So how do we haze? How do I haze that bear? And um, do I call Colorado Parks and Wildlife? Do I get this bear translocated? Um, or do I leave it be and see what happens? Um, those are all good questions. So um, let me start with the, the second one. So when do you call? Um, I think that's the lines are there for a reason. I think you, anybody should call based on their level of comfort or discomfort with a bear in their backyard. You mean safety, um, there's they, how safe they feel. Yeah, and, and it varies. I mean, so I looked at the reports for bear-human quote-unquote conflicts. Um, some of them were just citing throughout Colorado for, I think it was 13, 14 years um, back for my master's and some of them were just deciding somebody would get uh, uncomfortable enough to call Colorado Parks and Wildlife when there's a bear in their backyard and and that's part of and some of them are, are some people are like you where it's just a matter of like okay the bear is now testing my back door I need to call CPW and and set a trap but um, so so I think I will not answer that question. I think everybody will have their own um, level of comfort of when they want to call. But I would just say this. Um, we do live in bear country. Um, some of us are more, you know, um, more dispersed human density. And so, you know, again, Aspen is a prime bear habitat. We have riparian areas. I don't know if you live near the riparian areas. It's just natural places for bears to actually live and forage. Um, obviously, this bear is testing more anthropogenic sources. And so this goes back to also persistence is you're doing all the right things and you just have to keep on doing it. And in a bad conflict year, like this year, you might have um, bears that are just desperate if their natural food um, is not available. Or sometimes it doesn't have to be a bad natural food production year because I actually think we had quite a bit of precipitation. We might have had a late freeze um, event in Aspen, but we had quite a bit of precipitation. It might be just a transition between the grasses and forbs to the the fruiting um, plants that they will come and test. They're very smart. And so it's up to the landowner and our, you know, the resident and what they're um, comfortable with in terms of applying um, bear-proofing measures and, and trying to just coexist with, with bears. I would say one more thing. You mentioned hazing. And hazing actually in the Lake Tahoe, Nevada study showed that it's not effective. And what happens is, you know, the bears just run away and then they come back. A lot of times translocation could also be ineffective in that if we're trying to keep the bear away, they would just come back. We've seen it with some of our collared bears that came back. We never analyzed that that and, and published a paper, but we definitely saw those movements back. Um, also translocating a bear does not, you know, people think that, once um, the Colorado, you know, with the wildlife management agency would take the bear, they're kind of riding off to the sunset to a better future. Well, that bear just been torn to, from everything they knew. They, you know, they, they do invest in educating their young. They do know their habitat. It's been translocated to potentially compete with other bears. We actually had one bear that was translocated that was killed by another bear. That's what we thought, at least based on seeing the carcass. Um, so they have a lot of conflicts. They need to figure out where they're at right now. They are very prone to roadkill. 
as they also trying to come back. So translocating a bear is not the end-all solution. And removing a bear is not always the end-all solution because when you remove, and by removing, I'm saying euthanize a bear, sometimes you have to, again, if the bear is deemed too aggressive, has attacked a human being, yes, or, sorry, a person, um, uh, you don't want to remove it. But that also is not solving the problem. And I often... um, what you can you can happen, and especially in an area like Aspen that is great bear habitat, you create what's called a population sink, potentially. You know, you keep having bears that come into this great habitat, and then you just keep killing them because of conflicts. Well, new bears are going to come. So we're not really solving the problem for the long term, which is back to how you, we started this discussion, that, you know, to solve the problem for the long term, we want to reduce the human attractants, the, the anthropogenic food sources, so we prevent bears from coming to town for that. They might still come to town because, again, we live in great you know, we love that country. We love their appearing areas near the rivers. We love all the berries that we can go out and pick them up near a house. Well, the bears love that too. And so we need to realize that we need to increase our tolerance to some extent and to be able to coexist with, with bears. Now, that is me personally speaking. Other people would feel as comfortable. And then it's back to what is the policy and what is the wildlife manager at hand going to do when they received that call to come and remove the bear. This, this, that was a great response, and thank you for all the information. And uh, I've made a decision. I'm just going to kind of do everything I can because he's not aggressive yet and continue to, um, you know, put out perimeter uh, things that the bear doesn't want and ensure attractants are gone. So this is a great point that we're going to step away and take a little break, and then we're going to come back and talk about how we can prevent these, both as individuals and as a community. So stick with us and my guest, Sharon Baruch-Mordo, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? 
Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back. I'm Ellie Weiss, and this is Our Wild World, and my fascinating guest, Sharon Baruch Mordo. And we're talking about the uh, bear study she did for five years here in my backyard, Aspen, Colorado, and the uh, Roaring Fork Valley. And as I'd mentioned earlier, I'm currently going through a, an issue right now with a young bear, a yearling. Um, being sighted in my yard and then last night he took another step and testing boundaries because he's up on my dumpster which is not near my house so at this point in time I don't feel unsafe and he hasn't tested any of let's say my house perimeters coming up to my doors to where I feel threatened so let's lead into how we can prevent these conflicts both as individuals and as a community when we know we're living in prime bear habitat especially you know in the center of town restaurant row all these alleyways packed with great smells and where I live in a little you know it's two acre plots and a lot of BLM around me and a river and it's a lot of private land but it's also prime bear habitat and I know there's dens bear dens below and above me so it comes to that point you said willing to coexist and remove the anthropogenic attractants so this this is this is that rock in the hard place so what can we do uh, what are the solutions that you found out from your study yeah, those are all great points. So um, <clears throat> I'll talk about our study, but I actually want to um, give an example also from Whistler, British Columbia. I actually went there a few years back to consult about their um, human bear um, issues or conflicts. And they they have such a great effort there by individuals who just decided to, to be on top of, of you know, the anthropogenic food sources, be it engage with the city, engage with um, stakeholders, um, provide or help provide um, bear-proof um, containers, and just be on top of it. So I must say that some of it, it has not all of it has to come from the community. Um, some of it will come from um, education enforcement by the wildlife managers. Um, or the town or the municipalities, but this is a community decision. How do we want to, in my mind, in my mind after studying bears and seeing different communities, how do we want to live and coexist with bears? And and that also has um, lays bearing into what what efforts in terms of ordinances or enforcement or education that we want to. Um, deploy and are willing to to tolerate in terms of um, 
uh, violations of ordinances. And all of that lays into how does a community as a whole, individuals to municipality to wildlife managers, um, deals with, with human bear interactions and coexisting in bear country. So with that, I'll talk to the specifics and what we studied in Aspen. So like I said, in Aspen, we identified pretty quickly that um, garbage was the main attractant. Just like your backyard bear, they went into um, garbage cans, even bear-proof cans, um, and just um, enjoyed the bounty. And so a lot of times we noticed that that was because the the garbage cans are not properly secured. And anyone who um, would walk in Aspen in an alleyway, I would encourage you to do that or in a neighborhood, would see there's all sorts of, you know, designs for bear-proof containers. And what we do is we take those and we test them and say, can the bear open the trash can or not? What we failed to do is test it on ask, will a human easily secure this or not? And that's part of the problem is we have all those bear-proof containers, but they're not properly secured. And then we have a large um, violation in a way of the ordinance. So in Aspen, um, you mentioned there was actually an existing ordinance before we started this study in Aspen and Pitkin County um, requiring bear-proof containers, requiring them to be secured, requiring only curbside pick so uh, curbside pickup so that in neighborhoods that are more dis- dispersed, the garbage be put up only um, the day of pickup and then being put back in at night. And we didn't see that. So what we did is we asked, okay, how can we change human behavior? And usually what's done is you might see a sign put on a dumpster Um, You might, so we call it on-site treatment. So we we take a dumpster and put signs on them, asking people to properly secure the trash can. Um, People do bear aware campaigns. They send volunteers and um, they comb neighborhoods, knock on doors, say, hey, you know, you live in bear country. Let me give you some information and ask people to secure the trash. Um, And uh, let me keep with the education. So we applied that. We actually did that in an experimental setting where we did... um, control and treatment, either neighborhoods or trash cans, and we sampled before and after the treatment. And what we found is um, zero treatment effects. So what we're doing was not changing, and this is the key, what we measured is how do people secure the trash cans? So we didn't measure, which is ultimately what we're trying to do is the level of conflicts, of bare human conflicts. We measured whether people changed their behavior, and I'll get back to that point. We also teamed with the Aspen PD, which are the ones who enforce the city ordinance, in elevating enforcement and asking, um, do people change their behavior? And we found only when there was actually proactive enforcement, not just patrolling, but actually leaving notes, did people start changing their behavior to properly to properly secure attractants. And so... What we said in this study is not necessarily that education doesn't work, which is the, the carrot, and we just have to go with the stick, which is enforcement. But we need to be better at finding tastier carrots, right? <laughs> Something right. that's more effective in terms of the education. And these are carrots for the people, not right. Correct, right. <laughs> not for the bears. Good, good, good um, point to clear <laughs> to clarify. <laughs> Um, but it's unlike other things, right? Think about um, you know changing human behavior. This is where. I'm not an expert at that. I'm a wildlife biologist, ecologist. I'm not a human dimensions person, right? So we have to team with the right um, scientists to actually try and help and, and change people behavior. But this is not unlike like changing um, people behavior to not drink or drive 
or to wear their seat belts. Or and to so recycle. We want, in, or to recycle. In, yeah. Okay. But the reason I was pulling D, or you know, um, drunk driving and and wearing seatbelts is these are really this is by law, right? We can't do right. that, and so we do a lot of education, but you also do a lot of enforcement because you obviously just educating does not help. We have to also show. Even if we don't, you know, always enforce it or speeding, right? Just seeing that police car on the side of the road makes you think twice about all those things. Right. And so we need to do that, too, about uh, about human behavior. The other thing I would say is, and this is a point I wanted to go back, we're very reactive in applying those um, measurement, management um, measures, especially, say, a bearware comparing We'll have a really bad conflict here, and then we'll like we'll get the volunteers. People are pumped. There's be some news articles that just happened, and people go out and want to help, and we do that. And then we don't, you know, we go away, and the next year we don't have conflicts, and we think that worked. Well, one, we didn't measure people' behavior, so we don't know. It could be just like I said in the beginning. The first year was a very poor year, the bears were in town. The second year, it's not like we were good at what we were doing and changing people's behavior. It's just, it was a really good natural food year. So the bear were just out, bears were outside of town. So we never really get a, a, the result that we wanted. And the other thing is, this shouldn't be just during a poor bear year or during um, um, times of the year that bears are active. Because obviously during winter, bears are not active. Um, we need to think about changing human behavior throughout and make it consistent. If people are likely to properly secure their dumpster in, in December, they're more likely probably to do that in July. Right. And so I often said that we need to think about this as consistent change in human behavior. And this is where community grassroots movement to actually do things like that, to call on businesses. Here's here are businesses, here are restaurants who are great at securing their attractants from, from bears. Let's give that like the five bear paw mark versus restaurants or establishments that are not. And we, we do something like that. I've seen that happen in other towns. Um, so there's things that we could do. Just talk to your neighbor. It doesn't, you know, or things like that that we can explain. And, and we got to change our thinking. Even our, you know, management um uh, the biologists, everybody's thinking it's not just during those poor bear years, it should be consistent. Um, and it's not just about, and this is contradictory a little bit to what I said before, but it's not just about the good or poor um, natural food production years for the bears because they will respond to it. This should be year round. This is what is the anthropogenic food source habitat for the bears, right? right. We want to reduce it as much as we can. We want to reduce it um, all the time. So it's Oftentimes, called creating new habits incentivize people to do this all year long so that when it comes to that change in season it's we don't have to um well we still have to implement and let everybody know through various media that it's bear season they're waking up and yada 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 you're going to be seeing them and that it's it's really critical and so incentivize and was that what you said earlier like give a reward to those people well, I don't know how you could give a reward, but yeah, I mean, so one thing it was in terms of businesses and I saw those kind of ratings, but yeah, if you're Rating, just a resident, okay. yeah, or a resident, just, yeah, but, but what you're saying is make sure that the effort is consistent. So we always, we always try and manage drunk driving, but during holidays where we have, um, you know, St. Patrick's Day or whatever it is, we have a little bit heightened alert by the police. The same thing, we always want to manage 
um, the availability of anthropogenic food sources to bears. But during bad food years or when we know the bears are coming out, we definitely want to do campaigns to remind people and, and be on top of it. But we also do it with education and with enforcement. We just we can't just do the education and hope that people's will, people will change their behavior. And we will never, I, don't, I mean, always be careful as a scientist when you say never, but I doubt it that we will get to 100% compliance. Well, it's um, difficult. But you could reduce it. You could reduce the availability of foods, uh, natural, uh, anthropogenic foods for bears. Well, this, this brings up a question. In a town like Aspen or other resort towns that have a huge swelling population during summertime, uh, bear season of out-of-towners, usually very urbanized people that have never seen a bear and, you know, are recreating in wildlands and they're kind of unprepared to begin with in the sense that they don't quite understand that they're out there and that, you know, bears come into town. And so last year we had, even with all our bear-aware campaigns, the visitors um, who don't necessarily take the time to read all this material or uh, be prepared wanting to take pictures. They're so excited to see a bear that they are increasing the um, human-bear interaction by being so close, rushing up to a bear and stressing the bear. And that has a tendency, I believe, to create the, the, the stress bear to become what could be called more aggressive in terms of protecting itself, but not necessarily being an aggressive bear. Um, yeah, potentially. It's unfortunate that that happens. I mean, it happens even in national parks, right? People go and try and take a selfie with a bison or something like that, not right. recognizing that these are wild animals. Oftentimes, also, I could tell you what happens in Aspen. And I don't think necessarily as people trying to do anything bad. They're just super curious and excited, as I would be, you know, to see a bear. And the bears find refuge in a tree. And so the bear will go up the tree. Everybody crowns below. Well, the bear cannot get down anymore now. Now it's starting to get stressed. Now it starts to like maybe pop its jaws or huff and be uncomfortable. And people are just like, oh, this is, you know, look at it. And instead, what we want to do is clear the way, let the bear find its calm and go down and walk away. And if we allow them to do that, they will. Oftentimes we don't allow it. And then what happens is the bear might get tranquilized and translocate, tagged and translocate, and that counts as a strike. Um yeah, I mean, I, I, how does that relate to the greater coexistence? So that's one component. That's the tourist. Um, I can, I can maybe I could reframe that, frame this in terms of how I saw the human population in Aspen. If we yeah. think about, um, so we have, especially in Aspen and other resort towns, we have um, the year-round residents, which like yourself, you know, who are there. They're very attuned to what's going on with with their property with the bears and I think they're the ones who are oftentimes more likely to be um, securing their attractants um, more properly. Um, although I would say that this is just by anecdotal um, impression. We didn't really actually quantify that. Then we have the second and third homeowners who are there, you know, occasionally almost like a tourist. They might have a property manager who takes care of the property, but they could be also the people who might call the, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife and just say, hey, there's a bear in my backyard because, well, they love the fact that 
they're in Aspen and wildlife um, area, they don't like the fact that all of a sudden they come from an area without bears, that there's a bear in their backyard. Um, how likely these guys are to um, properly secure their attractants, I'm not sure. Um, they don't live there. They don't have that um, year-round understanding or um, potentially connection with their property. So that might be an issue. And then there's obviously the tourists, the people who just come in, they're just there for a day or two or a week, and then they're gone. Um, so when we think about um, all of those kind of human components of the population, this is where we need to design good education and enforcement um, 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 management activities or, or actions. And so, for example, when I stayed in Aspen as a tourist with my family during the study, I was in a, in a hotel. I never received any information about being bear aware. So that could be an easy fix if somebody would just require every hotel um, to do so. One of the other things that we didn't talk about before was construction site. There was a construction boom in Aspen when we were working, and the construction dumpsters were just supposed to only hold um, construction materials will we'll have food, whether it's because of a passerby or the crew, who knows. But that's another, you know, these people come, work during the day, and then they leave. And so how do we educate that um, um, aspect of the human population? There's a lot of service people. I mean, Aspen is a place, an expensive place to live. So people come from Down Valley, from even as far as, you know, um, Newcastle to, to come and just work during the day and then leave. How do we educate them? And so... I'm not sure that I'm giving all the answers, but what I'm saying is we, we know that we all need the, all the points, the hot yeah, spots. Exactly. So we need to start thinking, you know, as a bear ecologist, I think about bears and we need to start thinking about the people and how do we have the different component of, of the human population that's actually the people are using Aspen and how are they potentially providing um, food sources or conflict issues to bears and how do we try and change their behavior with carrots or with sticks? Right. And, and, this, and is, this is what I've always ahead. said. Conservation is about people. And um, and we've just defined another aspect of how people need to change behavior even more so now um, as we encroach further and further into these borderlands, buffer zones around massive wild spaces to coexist. This is what this whole conversation is about. Absolutely. So that leads me to um, kind of our final question here or <clears throat> near um, – what is the risk of the status quo? Yeah, um, I've been thinking a lot about it. So let's talk about locally with human bear conflicts in Aspen and take it beyond. Um, so, you know, locally, it's just a matter of time. We've seen more and more attacks. Um, there have been other towns or resort towns or even, you know, incidences in campgrounds. The Forest Service was found liable because they didn't enforce um, the, the ordinances or the rules to, to make sure that people are very aware. So it could be just a matter of time until we have a serious mulling, which we don't want to happen. Um, and then... Oftentimes, there was a great paper by Payne, um, and he basically reviewed several communities and said it has to come to almost like a dramatic event like that to actually make people okay, say, okay, let's change our behavior, let's change our ordinances, start enforcing, let's, let's do things right. 
And it's unfortunate. It's true of everything in life, right? Do we need to come to a crisis situation? Can we think ahead a little bit and try and change things? So there's certain things that we could do already without um, trying to, to, without keeping the status quo and risking um, a serious injury to, or even even a death to, to, to people. Um, obviously, also, there's impacts to the bears. And so... Um, one of the interesting things, and again, we didn't really set to look at that, and we didn't have as, as great of data, but um, I think the Durango study started looking at that, is the population structure. So as we start to remove a lot of older individuals in the bear population who are using town, um, we start seeing more and more younger bears in the age structure and less older individuals. And that's changing the potentially, again, this is anecdotal data, we need more data for that, but um, potentially can change the, the structure of the bear population, how susceptible it's going to be to um, to harvest, be it recreational harvest or due to conflict, because we do harvest bears in Colorado for recreation. Um, and so, and also, you know, change the nature. It's not, the bear society is not quite like an elephant society where you have the, you know, older individuals who teach their young and all, but, you know, there's something to be said about having older individuals in a population to learn to coexist with people who, who kind of figure out the system and we're kind of, it seems like we might be losing those. So in terms of that, that's another impact of the risk of the status quo. Wow. Wow. So, and some of the other points, I was just speechless listening to you. Um, so, some of the other points that you've listed, you know, in, in the increasing chance for severe injury and fatality. And I do recall we had one bear mauling here where I believe a woman died, a bear got into the house. So, once again, that gets back to reducing the um, possibility, lock the doors, uh, lock all your lower floor windows, keep your bird feeders out, put them up barbecues clean and um bears have an incredible sense of smell so if you know there's a bear coming around don't lead it to your house by providing aromas tantalizing aromas and they love sweet things right yeah and it's it's and sometimes it's the places you never know a lot of times we saw bears chewing on um hot tub covers and that's because um the the um, ornament that you would put or the oils you would put to kind of keep it from cracking the coverage from cracking had coconut coconut huh. oil in there so yeah they have incredible sense of smell and sometimes in the oddest places that they would just oh this this smells tasty you know let's try that but it's a bathtub cover and know, i also heard cover. they're attracted to some of the petroleum uh and, and gasoline smells and um that they're also attracted to uh well not only that but um like the insides of cars, the the smells, the plastics and car materials uh, exude when they're closed up and get hot. Um, yeah, I I don't know about that. My just knowing bears, I would think it's probably all the food that we spilled and we never remember that we did, and all those you know scents that are there. Actually, um, my colleague Stuart Brack did an interesting study of bears breaking in the Sequoia National Park, um, and he found that minivans were the number one type of vehicle and and partially probably now that I'm a mom I understand that because when you have kids in a minivan you always have those last crumbs of Cheerios is something that's hiding behind the seats and and that's probably more what the bears are keying on is the coffee that was spilled or the Cheerios that's under the seat or something like that and it is a point to you know that once they get in they're very destructive 
um, it, the potential is there to be aggressive, to be dangerous, and to be destructive. So once again, it highlights uh, the key point that we're covering here, what we can do to reduce all those things. Keep your car clean. Lock the doors. The bears can open a car door if it's unlocked. And um, if you got a garage, keep it in. Lock your doors. All these things. And um, do whatever we can to reduce any potential encounter. I don't even want to call it conflict. If we reduce the encounters, then we'll reduce the conflict potential. Right. And I want to say one thing about um, an aggressive bear. I think a lot of times um, bears are, you know, I've studied bears and I've backtracked them a lot of times in Aspen a lot, a lot many years. And um, I've rarely seen them in the open just as walking down the street. Um, basically, bears would like to avoid us. This is back to trying to be nocturnal when they're using town. They really don't like us around. They want to just do their thing. They just want to bulk up on fat and go and hibernate in the winter, which is actually a great strategy. I wish I could do that too. <laughs> um, but um, so we need to remember that. And a lot of times what we deem as aggressive behavior is a bear that's just checking. So bears are great, have great sense of smell, like you said. They can hear well. They don't see very well. They see like us. Oftentimes, people will see a bear standing on their two hind feet and the the, the back feet, and they think that um, the bear is aggressive. But all they're trying to do is kind of see better. And usually, you know, they would just then go down and run away. Um, bears sometimes kind of um, crunch up and they puff their jaws and they're kind of scared, you know. They, they, they would just, given the opportunity, they would just avoid. There's very few predatory, truly predatory black bear incidents in the United States or in the North, North America with bears. And so the key is, you know, if we reduce the opportunities for bears to feel cornered, we in our cars, our house, on our backyard tree, um, we will reduce um, those conflicts. And sometimes it means making some sacrifices. Um, yes, it is hard to always lock your doors and windows when you live in such a beautiful place that you want to just be inside and outside at the same time. Um, this is back to having to, to live uh, with bears. Maybe it means that, Ellie, in your backyard, you want to think twice about the crabapple tree. Or maybe, you know, I hate spraying, but maybe spray um, the flowers so they don't produce fruit. There are certain things that we could do that uh, would change, you know, how we um, interact with our environment, right. but will help theirs. Right. Exactly. And, you know, in, in my particular case of my crab apples, um, over the 40 years I've lived here, the bears have managed to prune them greatly to the point <laughs> that um, it, there's not much left. And then I make sure to go and knock off as much as I can so they don't have to climb the tree. Um, or And eventually when these trees get pruned enough, then I will replace them. But, um, you know, I but I also understand this is their habitat. And as long as they keep moving on, I don't have a problem. And right. um, it eventually, you know, I'm aware that between May, June through October, November, it's bear season, period. Mm -hmm. So um, we've got just a couple minutes uh, uh, post-study 10 years later of instituting and implementing bear-proof containers, what would be, what would be your, your takeaway from this? 
It's an ongoing. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's always um, new new challenges. So um, obviously, I my research now has has transitioned from uh, human bear conflicts. But I think people love bears. People um, love living in bear country. I think it's something we always have to work on. And I also think that. Um, the coexistence issues that we see about human bear conflict or human and bears in Aspen are true for everywhere, I would say, in the world. The human population is growing. We live more and more in wildlife um, habitats. We might be in an affluent community like Aspen. We might be in rural Africa with people who are just trying to collect enough wood to cook with and and just provide for the families. Um, the, the key to me as a conservationist and how I involved in my, uh, evolved in my thinking is as much as it is about understanding and researching the wildlife and how they use human um, habitats or you know habitats influenced by humans. Um, dominated by humans. It's also about how do we um, understand how to change people behavior? Um, how do we work with community-based conservation? Say it's Africa, how do we provide for different livelihood? Be it Aspen, how do we um, so livelihood to prevent uh, conflicts or poaching or things like that? Be it in Aspen, how do we change people behavior to secure trash? I think all in all in conservation, it's about how, you know, the world is finite, the amount of space is finite, and we're having more and more people. So how can we learn to better make the best of the problem and still enjoy nature and enjoy the resources in the wildlife, but also live responsibly and and, and make sure people um, behave properly in, that, in wildlife that is, areas? That is a, a great, great wind-up. So I can't thank you enough mm-hmm. for all you just said right there because the world is changing and we do need our resources we do need we do psychologically need wildlife and uh, so it's a lot of sociology with people to change our behaviors Um, so what a great program uh, Sharon thank you so much I could talk to you forever about this and uh, I believe we're going to catch up and get a little more into what you're doing now but meantime uh, we're out of time for this particular episode so thank you so much for your time and a great amount of information thank you Ellie it was a pleasure talking to you and I relive my Aspen days (laughs) it was great (laughs) well I hope if you ever come back you stop by and say hi and uh, meanwhile uh, to our listeners out there I hope you gain some information and go step out into your wild world and do all you can do to mitigate and reduce conflict interactions thank you thank you again for joining us this week Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 